Can we give it up one more time for the one and only Brother John Starling. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you because you are so worthy. So worthy to be praised. You have been so good to us. Lord, you've been better to us than we could have ever imagined being to ourselves. And Lord, if we're honest, we will say to you that you've brought us all from such a mighty long way. And we owe you, Lord God, a tremendous debt of gratitude. And so, Lord, we thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lord, my humble prayer is that it would be all of you and none of me. That you would increase as I decrease. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother, you took me to church this morning. I know we at church, but you took me to church. I grew up not far from here. And I went to church not far from here, but you took me to the times when we would travel to deep East Texas where my family is from. I grew up here, went to church at New Jerusalem, not far from here, but when, when we would go home, we went to Woodville, Texas. Some of y'all don't know where that is. Between Lufkin and Beaumont, down on 69. And you took me to Woodville this morning. Because when we went to Woodville, Brother John, Big Mama would be there in church. <laughs> Big Mama would get up early Sunday morning. Everybody in the house need to get up. Get ready for church. All the grandkids. Everybody, we're going to church this morning. Church was just a few steps from the front door. And when we got up in the morning, we could hear Big Mama in the kitchen. Praising God. And that was in the day when folks shouted in church. When the ushers had to come and 
and fan them. Make a circle around them. And see, if that happened in church, this church today, y'all would be like, so what's cool? Something, something wrong with I just need to tell you, ain't nothing wrong. It, it, here's what's wrong. When I think about it, the goodness of God and, and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out. Sometimes I can't hold it. And you know what? I don't want to. Because God's been too good to me. And that's what Big Mama would do. She'd stand up and she'd shout in church. And you took me there this morning. We serve an awesome God. I feel like asking Brother John to come back, but I better preach. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, we're in Romans. We've been in Romans for a while. We're going to be in Romans for a while, so just get ready. We don't, you don't need to ask what we're preaching. We're preaching Romans for a long time. But, but the good thing is we're, we're traveling through Romans. We're not on the same passage. and We're going through the book of Romans. And so this week we're in, in chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter 2. This week we're in chapter 2. This week we're in the second part of chapter 2. And so this week we'll pick up at verse 17 and we'll preach through verse 29 to the end of Romans chapter 2, which means that next week we'll be in Romans chapter 3. <laughs> Amen. I say all this so that you can be ready when you come to church. You can already, you can already have looked at it and you can already have studied it and you can, you can already be ready to tell me where I went wrong. Nah, not that. But you can be ready and know what the Word of God is saying as we walk through it together. Uh, on that note, until that point, next Sunday, which will be the 22nd, uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll have a guest preacher. Well, Nate Hill is going to be here preaching for us. Many of you know Nate, good friend of mine. He's going to be here to preach for us the first part of Chapter 3, Book of Romans. So Nate will be with us next week. Isn't that awesome? I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. I told him, when you come, I want to hear you preach. So I'll be here. Um, so Nate will be preaching. Please come uh, next week. We'll also have, we'll also have uh, Gospel Village will be with us next week to do a short, brief presentation to tell us about what they do. So make sure you come back uh, next Sunday uh, and hear Nate as we go through the first part of Chapter 3. I'm so glad that... Uh, uh, I know I'm taking a lot of time in the preliminary, but I can't help it. I'm sorry. We're going to get to it. I promise you. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, the second time that John came, that I'm preaching, because when he came the first time, it was Fritz preaching. Fritz did an awesome job, but I was sitting over there as John was singing. I said, boy, I sure wish I was preaching today. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. Let's look at it together. Would you stand with me as I read Romans chapter 2, 17 through 29? I'm, I'm stalling a little bit because I got my eyes are fuzzy right now. I can't see up here, Martha. I done got all messed up. I need to clear my vision back up. All right, I better hope now. I think I'm okay. Romans chapter 2, 17 through 29 says this. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law and boast in God, 
and know his will and approve what is excellent. Because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh-oh. <laughs> you say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Uh-oh. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dis dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You may be seated. Thank you. Oh, man. Good. Thank you. Thank you. I was just about, man, it's good to have good family. But I was just about to ask somebody, my wife, good looking out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, man, I'm not going to be able to make it. <laughs> From this second part of Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, I'd like to preach from this subject. Religiosity versus a redeemed life. Religiosity versus a redeemed life. Uh, it's been said that Arrival in heaven. Everybody here believe you're going to heaven? I hope so. Hope you believe that. I hope if you don't, you need to fix that today. Uh, it's been said, though, that arrival in heaven will be marked by sudden, shocking surprise. The source of the surprise will be a couple of things. First, the one who arrives will be shocked as they are greeted at the gate by a host of unlikely inhabitants, people whom he or she thought certainly would not be present in paradise. There's no way, the person will exclaim, there's no way. I mean, I heard that guy swear one time. This other guy that's meeting me at the gate, he got in trouble a little while ago and had to go to jail. Then this lady, this lady that's coming out to meet me, she had a child out of wedlock. There's no way that they can, well, they're here. I'm shocked. I'm surprised. Then secondly, after the initial shock of encountering such a suspect cast of characters, upon arrival. The search then ensues that would eventually end in equally shocking fashion. This search is for those who certainly must be here somewhere. Certainly if those other 
Says Martha, if they're here, certainly these folks that I'm thinking about, certainly they have to be here. So, so I'm searching high and low for these people that I know are here. People like Billy, who had a heart attack just a week ago. Billy was active in church. I never heard him cuss, and he, he appeared to be just a good Christian man. Then there was Betty, who died suddenly and unexpectedly last month. She seemed to be a great lady, and, and the preacher at her funeral even said that there was no doubt that Betty was resting in the arms of Jesus. Where are they? I can't find them anywhere. Where, where are they? I've asked everyone. I've looked high. I've looked low. But there's no sign of these people who I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt would be here when I got here. I mean, I, I mean, I can't say for sure because obviously I, I haven't been there yet. Uh, nor have I spoken to anyone who has been there. So I can't say with certainty that this is the case. I can't say that. Uh, but I just believe that this will be a sobering reality when those of us who know we're going uh, let me stop there again you need to know you're going <laughs> you need to know you're going when those of us those of us that know we're going when we get there I believe that this will be a twofold sobering reality I'm not even sure about the theology of such a scenario so don't be coming don't be sending me emails talking about where you get that from I'm not sure if it lines up theologically. I'm just giving you, this is bothering me. I keep looking down at it. <laughs> I'm just giving you what I imagine in my sanctified imagination. Amen, somebody. You know, all preachers have a sanctified imagination, right? <laughs> and so in mine, I'm just thinking that this could possibly be the case. I don't know if it lines up, but, but I think I, I, it, it seems to be a plausible possibility that such a scene could play out over in glory. Seemed like it could happen. The reason why this, this, this could possibly happen is that appearances, my brothers and sisters, can be deceiving. Appearances can be and often are deceiving. Things and people are not always as they appear. We only have those of us that are human, and hopefully everybody in here is. Those of us that are human, we only have the ability to see the outward appearance. We can't see anything more than that. We're limited in our vision. We're limited in what we can see, and we can only see the outside. But we serve a God who, who sees beyond what's on the outside. He can see what's happening on the inside. In fact, he tells Samuel when Samuel is looking for the next king and the boys start marching through and Samuel wants to select the first one that comes in, God says, I've rejected him because I'm able to see the heart and you can only see what's on the outside. 
That's the kind of God we serve. Samuel thought, man, this dude reminds me of Saul. This has got to be him. And if that, God said, no, that's not him. Uh, uh, and then Samuel said, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Because all these boys don't fit the bill. I'm looking at how they look on the outside, and God is able to see the heart. That's the kind of God we serve. Oftentimes, outward appearances hide stark realities. We know how to put on our Sunday best. Hello, somebody. It's the reason why, in my opinion, the 21st century church is suffering from a credibility crisis. You know that, right? I believe that's the reason. Uh, I've only been around for a little over 50 years. Little over. That's the only time. I've only been around for that long. So I can't say this with firsthand knowledge as it relates to the whole of history through the chasm of the years, but it seems as though the credibility of the modern church and its Christians, uh, it, it seems, is at an all-time low. I don't know. It may that probably was times in history that it's been lower than it is now, but because I'm living today, and I wasn't around back when all the other stuff was going on. I can read about it, but I'm living right now. And to me, as I look out at the landscape of Christendom, it seems as though we're at an all-time low, at least in my little over 50 years. Because, again, I remember the days of Big Mama. Amen. And, and, and when folks in Woodville walked by the church, they might have been drinking a beer halfway down the street. When they got in front of the church, they put the beer, at least they hid it. When they passed by the house, they spoke to everybody on the porch. How you doing today? Don't make no difference what they were doing. They spoke because they recognized that Christian folks lived there. When the preacher came in the room, folks stopped talking bad. Now the preacher joins in with the bad talking. <laughs> not me. I'm talking about other. Uh, not me. I'm not talking about me. <laughs> I believe we are in a crisis. Uh, in fact, here's the question. Do we practice what we preach? Do we practice? Or do we just preach it or do we practice it? Do we practice what we preach? Uh, a report by Zondervan states this. It states that many people contend that the greatest proof that God does not exist is the behavior of Christians themselves. In short, the way Christians live and act is solid proof in their minds that what Christians believe is not true. Isn't that sad? So the tension, what, what causes this tension? What causes this dilemma? What, what's the reason for this crisis? The tension is found in the issue of religiosity versus a redeemed life. There's tension there. there, there the, the, the verses in the middle tell you that there's tension between the two. And that's the reason, I believe, for our current crisis. Up to this point in Romans, up to this point, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, up to this point, he has dealt with those who sin openly. Those, you remember in first part of 
chapter 2 and all of the last part of chapter 1, he deals with, especially in the last part of chapter 1, that list of sins that the pagans were committing, that they were committing openly. And the Jews were standing in judgment of all of these heinous sins that they were committing as uh, uh, before God. So those were people who were sinning. Now, we arrived in chapter 2, and at the first part of chapter 2, he's already turned his attention from those who sin openly to the Jews who are, who, are, who are casting judgment on them and being hypocritical of them in the way that they live. Now he turns his attention to the issue of religiosity. In other words, church folk who are good at hiding their sins, putting on a show, perpetrating the fraud. All that stuff. He turns his attention to the church, folks, now. Uh, uh, Webster defines religiosity as the quality of being religious, piety, devoutness, excessive devotion to religion. Then Paul has his own description and kind of definition of it. Paul actually defines this concept and describes this person in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 7, Paul says this, having a form of God, of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Ever learning, he says, and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. These are the religious folk. That's how Paul defines it. In our passage today, Paul begins by addressing religiosity in verses 17 through 28. And he ends by describing the antithesis and uh, the solution to the antithesis of and the solution to religiosity when he talks about a redeemed life in verse, 27, uh, verse 29. And so let's look at it. First thing Paul does is gives us the description of religiosity in verses 17 through 20, the description of, re of religiosity. In verses 17 through 20, Paul makes several conditional statements regarding the prideful boastings of the Jews. The boasting of the Jews reflects Old Testament and Jewish teaching about the privileges and responsibilities God gave to Israel. In verse 17a, they boasted about their heritage. 17a says this, but if you call yourself a Jew, they were calling themselves Jews because that meant something. They were boasting by saying that in their heritage and their lineage. They were boasting in it. Uh, they, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, proudly boasted that they were Jews and that this heritage carried with it some sort of guaranteed salvation. Need to stop and tell you that nothing guarantees your salvation except uh, a, a surrendered life to Christ. I don't care what your name is, what your denomination is. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you're a child of the king. They were boasting that they were Jews, and they surmised that because of this, their ticket to heaven had already been punched. They, like the Pharisees, though they here in this text, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, could trace their lineage back to Abraham and had no qualms about invoking this perceived privileged status. 
whenever and wherever they saw fit. They talked about it. But Jesus says to them, he says this, he says in Matthew chapter 3, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, he says to them, uh, that means nothing. Just because you're boasting in your lineage and, and, and boasting that you are the children of Abraham, that doesn't mean it. Just because you're boasting that you are a Jew, just because you're boasting that you are a Baptist, just because you're boasting you're Methodist, just because you're boasting that you're evangelical, it makes no difference because the only thing that matters is what's happened on the inside. So they boasted in their heritage and then in 17b, they boasted about their law. They took pride in the fact that 17b says this, uh, and rely on the law. They boasted in the heritage, and then they say they rely on the law. They took pride in the fact that they had the law among them, had it in their books, read it in their synagogues. They were mighty mightily puffed up with this privilege and thought this was enough to bring them to heaven, though they did not live up to the law. They boasted about it. Then after boasting about the law, they boasted about their supposed connection to their God. 17, the end of 17 and the beginning of 18, it says this, and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. They boast in their supposed connection to their God, supposed. To refer to oneself uh, as a Jew was done by them with great pride because it signified a supposed special connection to God. A Jew was one who supposedly having obeyed the law could boast about his relationship with the true God, whereas Gentiles who were guilty of such varied and awful sin could obviously make no such claim. All the Gentile, the poor Gentile could do was hope to be taught by a Jew. And that was their only hope is that the Jews would teach them. Lastly, in verses 19 through 20, they boast about their special commission from God. God indeed gave his law to Israel, entered into a special relationship with them, and commissioned them to be a light to the Gentiles. Look at 19 and 20. 19 and 20 say this, And if you are sure that you, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They boast about their special commission given to them by God. They knew and realized and thought and boasted that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. It's noted, it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, where God says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those 
who sit in darkness. This was his commission to his people that they would be this. And they boasted in this that God had commissioned them to be his mouthpiece, to be his teachers, to be the ones that would lead the world to him. Uh, they were not wrong to enjoy these blessings. Their error was in failing to live up to their privileged positions. They were not wrong to enjoy these blessings. They may have been wrong to boast about them. Boasting is never good because most times when we start boasting and bragging about something, we're going to fail. It was not wrong to enjoy these blessings. The issue was that they did not live up to what they were bragging about. So, in 17 through 20, we get the description. We've just gotten that the description of religiosity. Then in 21 through 24, we see the act of religiosity. You get the description of it first. Now, in 21 through 24, we get the act. 21 through 23 is a deeper dive into the allegation of hypocrisy that Paul levels against them in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Remember, it was the first time that Paul says, you're talking about them. I'm paraphrasing. This is my own version. You're talking about them and judging them. You need to be looking at yourself. Are you doing what they're doing? Are you, are you casting judgment on them? Remember I told you last week, we're not capable. We're not able to judge anybody. We're not equipped to judge anybody. God is the only one who can judge because we have too many flaws. And most of the things we try to judge people about, we're guilty of ourselves. When we really examine ourselves, we'll find out that we're guilty as well. So Paul here takes a deeper dive into what he said in verses 1 through 5. Paul argues here that in all of the Jews' boastings, he has fallen way short in the responsibility that accompanies such a privileged relationship with God. In all of their boastings, in all of what they were saying, and in, in, in invoking that they were Jews, they, 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 they sounded good, but their action said that they had fallen short of the response. See, listen, let me tell you something. Anytime you're, you're blessed with something, you're given something, you're allowed freedom in something, whatever. I tell my son, you got a lot of freedom, but there's, there's something to go along with that. Isn't it? Anytime you have blessings, freedom, things, there's something that goes along with it, and it's called responsibility. So the Jews, boasting in all of this, forgot that they had a responsibility to uphold. It's what Jesus talks about in Luke 12, 48, when he says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much, y'all know it, much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Wherever there's much entrusted, there will be much required. That requirement is called responsibility. They were guilty of talking the talk, but not walking the walk. The Jews were guilty of committing the very things they taught preached and spoke against. They preached at others, but failed to listen to their own sermons. Told y'all a couple weeks ago, every time I sit down to prepare a message, it cuts me before it cuts anybody. 
I'm convicted before I walk in here. I've already spent time with God, and I've already had God tell me, this is you. <laughs> before you start talking about they, them, and them, and there, and all that, you need to talk about you, you, and yourself. Right? And, and that's what happens. That's what happens. Uh, they were guilty, though. They, they, they preached at people, but they didn't listen to their own sermons. In verses 21 and 22, they're guilty of deceit. Look at 21 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In these two verses, Paul says to them, you are guilty of deceit. Stealing, they were guilty of stealing. It's the Greek word klepto. It's where we get our word kleptomaniac from. They were guilty of being kleptomaniacs, or he says you could be. Question yourself. Are, are you guilty? Of, you, you, you preach against this. Do you do it yourself? They, he says, are you guilty? You preach against adultery. Are you guilty of, adu of adultery? Not just spiritual adultery, as we have in the case of Hosea, but literal adultery. He says, are you guilty of that? It's a Greek word, mishivo. It means to commit adultery. It, 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 Paul says, are you guilty? You're guilty. Some of you are preaching against it. Are you guilty of robbing temples? You're guilty of that. You're preaching against it, but you're guilty of it. Uh, and then in verse 23, he says, not only are you guilty of deceit, but you're also guilty of dishonoring God. And let me just pause here and say this, because I see some of y'all twisting in your seat right now. I'm going to tell you what I tell you all the time. It gets better. It's tough right now. But John, it's tough right now as we go through what Paul says to the Romans. But as always, Paul never lets us down. He always gives us some good news at the end. And can I just give you a preview of what's coming? There's some good news coming. And I'm so excited and, and I can't hardly wait to get there. That's the reason why I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Right? But I feel there's tension in the room because Paul, Paul's message right now is not comfortable. It's not a message that we shout on. It's not a message that moves us to excitement and laughter and smiling. It's not that. But he's going to give it to us in a minute. Verse 24, and so 23, that you're guilty of dishonoring God because their practice didn't match their profession. They were guilty of dishonoring God by treating him shamefully and with contempt. 24 says, for as it is written, the name, or 23 rather, uh, says this, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They were dishonored. They're guilty of that. And then we get to 24. And 24 is a consequence of what's happened in 21 through 23. Because in 24, he says this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> That's what he says. That's a consequence of them being guilty of those things in 21 through 23. Consequences, the name of God is blasphemed. Blasphemed. Uh, it's the Greek word blasphemeo. It is, it is to slander, to be spoken evil of. They were guilty of destroying the credibility of God. I never want to be guilty of that. God has, we, uh, several months ago, I talked about God's credibility. 
and that he has an impeccable past performance record. Talk about his credit rating. Y'all remember that? And I told you his credit rating is excellent because he's always done what he said he's going to do. Would you want to be accused of or guilty of destroying the credibility of God before others? This is what they were guilty of. Paul quotes Isaiah 52.5 here when he says this. And in Isaiah 52.5, it says this, Now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, that they, they that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. That's from Isaiah. And Paul quotes that passage here in Romans. In Isaiah, God's name is blasphemed because Israel is oppressed by pagan nations. Here in Romans, Paul uses the passage to demonstrate the failure of the Jews to live up to their responsibilities. Their responsibility for them and for us is quite clear throughout Scripture. All of us have a responsibility being children of God. All of us have a responsibility being Christians. All of us have a responsibility being followers of the king. With that privilege comes great responsibility. It's all throughout Scripture. Scripture says one of our responsibilities is to be salt and light. You know it's the case because Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5 on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in, in Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your God. Our role, our responsibility as believers, as followers of Christ is to be salt and light and the Jews had failed in their responsibility. Another responsibility we have is to be ambassadors. You know, an ambassador is one who represents one country in another country, one kingdom in another kingdom, one king in another king's land. And let me say to you that all of us are called to be ambassadors from the kingdom of heaven. You do know we're in this world, but we're not of this world. The songwriter said we're just pilgrims. Somebody help me. Passing through this barren land. Well, we're on our way somewhere. I told you when I opened this sermon, it's going to be a day. Hopefully you've already secured it when you arrive at the pearly gates. And that says to me that we're not citizens here. Our citizenship, Paul says in Colossians, is in heaven. Right? And because of that, we're ambassadors while we're here. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, Therefore, we, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's one responsibility, salt and light. The other one is to be ambassadors. The other one is that we are to be witnesses. And the Jews were to be salt and light. They were to be ambassadors. They were to be witnesses. We are to be witnesses of the goodness of God, of all things that are godly. Paul, uh, Luke talks about it in Acts. When, he, when Jesus is talking in Acts, when Luke writes it, but Jesus is talking in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and this is what Jesus says. He says after his ascension and he has come to be with the disciples, 
Before his ascension, he's come to be with, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he's given last final instructions to those that are left behind. He says this in Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. All of these responsibilities that the Jews had, we have as well. We are to be salt and light. We are to be ambassadors, and we are to be his witnesses. Uh, several years ago, a poll was taken that showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those people claiming to be uh, Christians when it came, as, as those people who were not Christians, uh, when it came to the following list, that the lifestyle was the same. Lifestyle activities were the same as those who claiming not to be Christians when it came to this list. Gambling, visiting pornographic websites, taking something that didn't belong to them, saying mean things behind someone's back, I told y'all, I see you squirming. Hold on. We, it's getting better. I'm rushing to the end. <laughs> Consulting a medium or a psychic. Having a physical fight or abusing someone. Same as non-Christian. Using illegal or non-prescription drugs. Saying something to someone that's not true. That's called lying. And getting back at someone for something they did. Statistically, they found there no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. There was no statistical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in these nine areas of their lives. The only activity that was less common for Christians, and this is not a joke, was recycling. 68% versus 79% Christians were lower on the scale. And that was the only thing that there was a difference in. This, my brothers and sisters, exemplifies what people mean when they say Christians are hypocrites. They see people who claim to be morally upright, yet look, sound, and act, and live no different than anyone else in the world. The problem is that their lives misrepresent Christianity to the world. Conversely, we can talk about those folks that do the wrong things, act the wrong way, but conversely, churches are filled with people who attend every Sunday service, don't say bad words, don't watch bad movies, and make sure to give their offering every week. However, they don't actually intimately know Jesus. Don't love him or walk with God at all. There's somebody sitting on your row right now. Don't look around. <laughs> that fits that description. I mean, it could be you. <laughs> you hear every week. But is there, has there been something that happened on the inside? <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's, that's what it is. Uh, they have simply adopted a cultural Christianity, an exoskeleton of religious trappings, just a form of godliness. We have a responsibility, church. The world is watching. The world is watching us. So we've seen the description of religiosity, the act of religiosity. Now Paul deals with the condemnation of religiosity in 25 through 28. 25 through 28, Paul gives us a view at how God uh, condemns this act. God instituted the Jewish ceremony of circumcision, and Paul deals with that in 25 through 28. 
uh, 25 through 28, verse 25 says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. God instituted the Jewish ceremony of circumcision in Genesis 17, 9 through 14 as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. It was to be performed on every male Israelite child. Circumcision, therefore, represents God's covenant with his people Israel and served as a sign that they were uniquely dedicated to him. Circumcision was to serve as an outward sign of inward dedication to God. In itself, it was neither efficacious nor unique to Israel. The Jew felt that God would accept him just because he had been circumcised. But Paul's point here is that circumcision is useless if it's not reflective of a transformed heart. So in verse 25, disobedience makes circumcision uncircumcision. And in 26, which says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In 26, obedience makes uncircumcision circumcision. And then, in 27, when the people, the Jews despised, lived pleasing lives that were pleasing to God and had their hearts right with God, they were accepted instead of the Jew. Look at 27. 27 says this. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. People who despise, who, who the Jews despise, lived God, lives that were pleasing to God and had their hearts right with God, they were accepted in, in place of the Jew and instead of the Jew. In fact, not only were they accepted, God tells them that these are the ones who will condemn the Jew who displeases God. It's a condemnation of religiosity. So thus far, in verses 17 through 28, Paul has given us the description of religiosity. He's dealt with the act of religiosity. He's made the condemnation of religiosity. Now, in 29, we get to the good news because in 29, he tells us how to avoid being the person that can't be found in heaven. Because somebody's thinking about you right now. When I get to heaven, I know they're going to be there. Well, you're going to be one of the ones that <laughs> they look at knocking on doors. I don't know if there's doors in heaven. I don't know. I'm just, you know. It might be. I mean, Jesus says we mansion, talks about mansions or rooms in some. I don't know if we're going to have a room or mansion. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if this is theologically correct, but I'm just saying folks might be walking around knocking on doors. Talking about is, I'm trying to think of a name that's not anybody present in this room. <laughs> Are they here? I'm looking for them. You have to, listen, right now is the time to avoid not being found when I get there because I'm going and I start knocking on doors looking for you because I want to reunite with you and I can't find you. It's time to fix that right now. And so Paul gives us a remedy for fixing that because in 29 he gives us uh, the description of a redeemed life. Description of a redeemed life. Who is, let's, let's, let's read 29 real quick. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Who is a Jew is the question. Who is a Jew? Uh, in other words, who is accepted of God as the seed, not 
talking about born a Jew, who is accepted of God as the seed of believing Abraham, are owned as having answered the intention of the law, not the letter of the law, but the intention of the law. Do you fit that bill? According to John 8, 39 and 40, to be Abraham's children is to do the works of Abraham. So a true Jew to me equals a redeemed life. A redeemed life is one that has undergone a heart transplant because at the end of 29, this is what Paul says, uh, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from, but from God. So for me, a redeemed life is a life that has undergone a heart transplant by the Spirit as it's described in Ezekiel 36 where the writer says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This person that's living the redeemed life seeks praise not for mankind but from God. I am not attempting to please you. Sorry to share that, break that bad news. And I don't want you to attempt to please me. You know who I'm trying to please? I'm trying to please my God in heaven. That's the only person that, that I'm trying to please is God. I'm seeking praise from him. I want my testimony to be like Jesse Dixon's testimony. Jesse Dixon, those of you that are, that are familiar, sang the song, I am redeemed. And I want that to be my testimony. I, you ought to want that to be your testimony. I am redeemed. I am redeemed. Bought with the price. Jesus has changed my whole life. If anybody asks you just who I am, tell them, that I am redeemed. If anybody asks you, just what Jesse says, just who I am, would you tell them? They interviewed Jesse before he did a concert, before he passed, and Jesse said, and the man said, what would you want to be remembered by? And if anybody could remember you when you're gone from here, and he said, I want them to know that I was redeemed. That ought to be our testimony. We ought to want to live a redeemed, a redeemed life is one that's been dedicated to Jesus. A redeemed life is one that seeks to please Jesus. Here is my testimony. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith. I received my sight and now. That's what a redeemed life looks like. We don't want to be religious. Brother John, we want to be redeemed. We don't want to be like the Jews who are only religious. We want to be true Jews who are redeemed. Father, we thank you for your word that is a light to our feet and a lamp to our pathway. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your joy and peace. Thank you for the place you have for us over in glory that will be found there because we are redeemed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, we want to extend the invitation as we prepare to be dismissed. We want to extend the invitation for those of you that may have a desire to be members here at Bethel Hope. 
we'd like for you, if you have that desire, we want to introduce you to that process. It's a really easy process, but in order to get started with it, we want to recognize you today. If, you're, if you are that person, would you stand? You want to join, unite with us here? Anyone? Would you stand? Yeah. Then certainly, we don't want to leave here without extending the invitation to Christian discipleship to know this Jesus that we talk about. Don't leave here today if you haven't settled that matter that you've been wanting to. Because as life would have it, and as strange as life is, neither one of us may not see tomorrow. And if I don't see tomorrow, but Robbie, when I get there, I want to see all of y'all. Not tomorrow. <laughs> but at some point, <laughs> I'm not rushing it. <laughs> but whenever it happens, I want to make sure you're there with me because I'm going. And I, can, I, I have always been able to say that with confidence. But you wonder, why you keep saying that? Because I'm confident now. I'm not boasting. My hope is in Jesus. So would you do that if, you, if you've not given your heart to Christ and you want to do that? Would you stand? We have people that will pray with you. And make sure you have a reservation for a mansion over in glory. Anyone? All right, again, as I always say, it doesn't have to happen here, it doesn't have to happen now, but just make sure it happens. <laughs> right? With that, I'm going to pray off of the benediction. Before we do that, can we one more time give it up for the one and only John Starling? Thank you. Uh, we, he's coming back. He doesn't know it yet, but <laughs> he's coming back. Uh, if there's nothing else, I'm going to offer the benediction and we'll be dismissed. We go. Remember all those wonderful announcements and things we have going on. Don't forget any of that. Great things going on. Uh, baptism next Sunday. Leaders meeting next Sunday. On October, I will announce this later, but on October 13th, we're going to have our next potluck here. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Did you have something? I saw a hand up. that now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory majesty dominion and power both now and forever in Jesus name